Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. The next steps should be survivor-led and the survivors, the uncles of Kinchula, have very clearly now said they want further investigation of the site and they want to know if these uh, are clandestine burials and if they are, how old they are and whether they could be uh, boys who did not make it out the gates of Kinchula. The Secret Graves of the Stolen Generations and Justin Muhammad, Australia's first ambassador for First Nations people. It provides a lot of opportunity to do um, something very new, but on the other side of it, there's no real template or blueprint from other countries or other types of you know, positions like this that you can kind of pick up and go, okay, well, you know, maybe we should implement some of this stuff because this is what this, this ambassador in this country did um, that had a similar sort of role. So having that sort of greenfield site um, with some key sort of direct directions, but trying to establish what comes first and how we, what's the priority now and what I need to focus my time in and then what is the next plan and building really an office and um, this role as ambassador to embed it. So the very importantly, the ambassadors that come after me and governments that, you know, come after this government, government will see this role in this office as a very integral part of our foreign policy and our foreign affairs. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. An investigation by Guardian Australia has revealed multiple sites of possible unmarked graves on a number of Aboriginal missions and reserves, including the infamous Kinchler Boys Home on the New South Wales mid-north coast. Guardian Australia has spent almost a year investigating missions and institutions where children removed from their families were housed as part of the Stolen Generations. It's believed more than 700 Aboriginal people, most very young, were buried with no record while under state care in Western Australia. Lorena Allam and Sarah Collard are the First Nations journalists behind the investigation and they join me now. Lorena, let's start with you. How did you first hear about this story? Me personally, I had heard from working on the Bringing Them Home inquiry all those years ago in 1995. The report was released in 97. But there was a submission made by LinkUp, the survivor support group here in New South Wales, that suggested that the grounds of Kinchilla Boys Home should be surveyed because survivors believed that boys might have met with foul play. Um, nothing was done about that. Uh, until uh, 2016 when the state government in New South Wales agreed to uh, survivor um, requests to have the ground surveyed and then a survey was done in 2022. But So I'd heard about that and then I was talking with Sarah, my colleague, who had been recently speaking to the uncles of Kinchula, the survivors, called themselves the uncles, and she said that they were in the process of, of getting ready to scan the, the the grounds and that, you know, that's when we both, you know, looked at one another and thought, oh, this is, this is something that's happening here, this is really big. And just for people who aren't aware, and obviously this is a national program and Kinchula Boys Home was in New South Wales, can you just tell us a bit about when it was founded and how it operated? Yes, so Kinchula Aboriginal Boys Home, and, and just warning people, this is there's some really traumatic content here. Um, Kinchula Boys Home was 
set up as a boys' home in 1924 and it ran until 1970 during the Stolen Generations era when between 400 and 600 Aboriginal boys were taken away from their families and incarcerated there. The you know between the ages of five and fifteen, and then at sixteen to eighteen years old, they were booted out onto their on their own. There was minimal education. The boys were the labour on the farm. They were they were sent out to work as labourers on other farms, unpaid. They talk about the deprivation and the punishments that they received on a daily basis. It was a very violent place. They talk about um, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse that happened there, unregulated. There were government investigations over time. Uh, in the you know late 30s, uh, the police uh, sacked a manager from Kinchilla because he was using stock whips on little boys. The uh, survivors, as old as older men, talk about the tied to the tree overnight as punishment, made to stand in the swamp up to their neck as punishment, and and the leeches would climb on them. So it was a it was a very uh, um, violent place, and the the men who came out of there. There's only fifty six survivors left of the hundreds of boys uh, who who went through that place. Have you spoken to survivors of the boys' home about the investigation? What's been their response? Uh, so we spoke to uh, many of the uncles, six of them on the site. Six of them, five of them on the site, and then another uncle, Lester Ma, who spoke to Sarah Collard, my colleague, by a phone later. So they took us to Kinshula and we spent uh, a lot of time there with them. They walked us around the site. They told us their stories. Um, so they were very much involved in this reporting. Uh, part of the part of the story is that they have told their own stories in their own words, and we've published that as part of our investigation. I'll just bring you in here, Sarah. I'm going to um, talk about the Western Australian part of the story with you, but obviously that you were a big part of this story too. What was it like being out there on K- at Kinchilla uh, with the uncles? Yeah, it was really, really powerful. So we went out there for a weekend and we drove out there after being invited. We'd been speaking with them for many months and they had, had finally agreed to kind of take us out there and, and show us and um, it was quite confronting, like hearing hearing their stories. We knew a lot of what they'd been through, but it's quite harrowing, you know, seeing the tree where they were chained up in and being in the rooms where they were beaten and abused was pretty horrendous. Um, but it was also pretty powerful with them sharing their stories and trusting us enough to to do that. And some of the men that we spoke to had never ever told their story before, not even to their kids or their grandkids. So to be trusted with that was something that we felt like it was a good, great honour. Just hearing you describe that, Sarah, I mean, these things happened decades ago, but it sounds like when you're there, it feels like it was yesterday. It, it does. And it's still very raw for, for the uncles. And, you know, even though this happened to them, you know, 40, 50 years ago, that they, they bear those scars and that trauma with them forever and they, they still carry that. So it's still extremely raw for them. And But they also spoke about how it was quite freeing and empowering for them to be sharing their story and going there. And each time they came, they came away feeling a bit better and more healed and being on that site with the other uncles was a part of that healing journey. Lorena, from your investigations at Kinchler, what scenarios are there which could have led to such a large number of possible unmarked graves? So the report that's been done, it urges some caution. It can't be known for sure 
how old these graves are, these possible clandestine burials. They could be ancient remains of ancestors. They could be forensic, which means they could be under 100 years old. It's, it's difficult to know without further surveys and without excavation work being done. But the ground penetrating survey is a, is a very reliable non-invasive means of identifying this kind of anomaly, they call it. Um, it brings, it gives off a very distinctive signature if, if it's a human burial and a clandestine burial will give off a, a particular signature close to the surface of the ground. Now, when the surveys were done, they were, they first toured the site with the uncles and used oral history to determine where they should look specifically. They also then uh, did lots of research about the historical uses of the property from, you know, very early days of colonisation to recently so that they could determine exactly what, you know, what the, the ground was used for. And then they did the ground penetrating surveys around the main building and then at the back, which they called the agricultural area. And a combination of all of that information led them to the conclusion that there were nine anomalies that could not be explained by any other means and that had a signal pattern on the GPR that was consistent in other contexts as a clandestine burial. Based on that, they made a series of recommendations to the New South Wales government, chief among them, that the next steps should be survivor-led and the survivors, the uncles of Kinchula, have very clearly now said they want the site, they want further investigation of the site and they want to know if these uh, are clandestine burials and if they are, how old they are and whether they could be uh, boys who did not make it out the gates of Kinchula. Sarah, you've been working on a similar story in Western Australia involving three Aboriginal missions. What can you tell us? So I recently travelled to Western Australia as part of this investigation, looking at just three missions in the southwest of WA, looking at Moore River Native Settlement, Carolup uh, Mission, which was later Marybank, and New Norcia, as well as uh, Wandering Mission. And, and we spoke with survivors and descendants about their loved ones who were also buried in unmarked graves. And during that time, uh, hundreds of, of people were, were buried uh, uh, during the operation and of, the, of these uh, missions. And obviously the conditions were quite deplorable in a lot of cases, so sicknesses and illnesses were rife. And so that unfortunately took a, took a lot of lives. So we discovered in, in our travels that, you know, there's hundreds of graves that are unmarked, that their descendants are calling for action, that they, they want them to be honoured, that they want them to be respected. And in some cases, they also want them to be repatriated to their home communities. What has been the community response to the uh, work you've done on those sites in Western Australia, Sarah? It, it, it's been really powerful, like a, a, a number of people whose loved ones have been buried in unmarked graves, whose grandmothers or great-grandmothers or, or, or parents in some cases were um, buried in these unmarked graves, have contacted me telling them about their own struggles and challenges of trying to, to locate their loved ones and thanking us for the work that we've done, that they've, you know, that they've battled for, for years trying to get this recognised, trying to get records of where their loved ones are buried through the churches and through the state and they're just having no luck. So it was an issue that they were hoping people would really shine a light on and, and it's been great that there's been so many people that have, have, have come forward since this story came out. So you've got 
two different states where you're looking at possible burial sites and and sometime and of course you know oral history that is pointed in the direction of where you're you've done the investigations from your perspective Sarah in these two investigations in two different states what have been some of the themes that you've seen in common that you've observed while investigating the stories I think that this is a very very common story so you know children were, were taken away from all over the country and they were put in these homes and their parents never never knew what happened to them and often they never came back and their parents never knew what happened to them and sadly there were many kids who never made it back because they died in these institutions and one of the things that that struck me was the fact that records and access to records has been a perennial issue for survivors and descendants, that they're just being hit with roadblock after roadblock for months and in some cases years all across the country when they're trying to find out what happened to them and their families. And Lorena, what do you hope the impact of these investigations will be more broadly? Yeah, so just um, based on what Sarah has just said, I'd like to add to that about the records. It was very crucial. It was a key recommendation of the Bringing Them Home report that survivors should have access to their records, records held not just by state governments but by missions and church groups and missionaries, some of whom were storing boxes of records in their shed. Um, I know during the inquiry we heard a missionary in the Northern Territory who was literally keeping uh, people's personal records in a shed in Humpty Doo. Um, and he had sole uh, authority over who was allowed in to see what. So that was 30 years ago. So it's really shocking to see that this has remained unaddressed all these years. One of the stories in our series is about records and uh, the records that have gone missing that make, it, that make it very difficult for people not only to find out you know, who their family were and where they came from, but also find out about um, to be able to prove their history for reparations. So some of the states do offer reparations for stolen generations, but the bar to prove yourself is very high. And if you don't have access to your records, you can't access the reparations payments that that are your entitlement. Um, So one of the things we would like to see come out of this investigation is for those recommendations of the Bringing Them Home report for governments to to go back to those and, and make some commitments to helping survivors access their records. And specifically uh, in the sites that we've been to, I mean, Sarah travelled to all those missions in WA. We know Kinchula at Cootamundra Girls' Home and Bombardieri Infants' Home here in New South Wales. Survivors are looking at similar ground-penetrating surveys um, because they are also convinced there might be human remains on those sites. Um, We know in Queensland there were mass graves uh, at at missions like Sherberg, Palm Island, uh, the neighbouring island that was a leprosarium. So we know that this is a big problem in our communities uh, and people really want the ability to put a marker on a grave and somewhere to visit so that they can mourn their loved ones. And that's really, you know, not that much to ask. Sarah, as a First Nations journalist, I imagine you approach a story like this with a lot of personal attachment to it. What's been the impact of doing this story, this investigation on you? It has been quite challenging because I'm from that area and so I know a lot of the people and family connections there. So it it is something that you approach in a very personable manner and it has been, you know, quite challenging but it's also been very rewarding that people trust us and they know that we're coming from a place of 
that we want answers to. And what about you, Lorena, and especially bearing in mind what you said at the beginning, that you've actually been working in this space since you were working on the Bringing Them Home report, and I know this has been in the Stolen Generations has been an issue that you've followed um, with great interest. You've made a lot of friends, have a lot of connections um, in this space. What's been the impact of this story on you? Yeah, so as you say, I was involved in that inquiry. It's, it's work I am very proud of as one of the... the um, it's a really landmark report. So this is by far the most challenging and distressing story I think I've ever worked on. Uh, I'm very glad to have worked on it with Sarah because just watching the way her empathetic way of uh, approaching survivors and we very much approach this in a trauma-informed way and as she said, we both know this history very well. Uh, it's something that is in our families uh, and we, we understood that we needed to do it very carefully and, and it took a long, long time for the uncles to uh, agree to, to, you know, to work with us on it. So uh, it was harrowing and challenging and, but, you know, I mean, they, they lived it, right? They survived it. Uh, and they are able to get up every day and they laugh with each other and joke around and they're like brothers and it was just so lovely to be around them. Um, so it was a real honour to to tell their stories and if they have the courage to keep speaking out, then we have we should at least have the courage to, to listen. I'm struck by that, listening to both of you, that these are horrendous stories that sort of that people have spoken of in our oral history and here is an investigation that's literally bringing the issue to the surface. But within that, you've both spoken of how empowering it's been for people who have been talking about this to finally see some action. And I wonder what your reflections are on that as, as journalists to... Uh, be working on an investigation that actually gives validation, gives voice and allows for people to be re-empowered by telling their story. I mean, it sounds like within the trauma there's a very important process that's going on. I might start with you, Lorena, and then get your thoughts on that, Sarah. Uh, yes, yeah, so we did ask the uncles what helps when, when all these feelings and memories come back because, you know, we had Uncle Bobby Young, who's who's a lovely man who showed us the links in the tree where they, he used to be chained up at night as punishment. And, you know, I said to him, what what else helps? Um, you know, some of them uncles uh, write poetry, uh, some do their art. Uncle Witty said talking about it helps. Uncle Bobby said talking about it helps. So it, it was really good to, to for them to have that opportunity to be recognised and validated. But I guess the reason they speak up is because they want things to change and they've been telling this story the same way since 1995 and probably before that. You know, so it's taken 30-odd years for governments to come around to the fact that, you know, that there might be something in what they've got to say. So this, the survey that's been done is kind of a vindication for, for their persistence, but it also raises a lot more questions. Um, and they can't really heal or resolve those questions until they know for sure what these anomalies are so that they can kind of move forward because they want to turn Kinchula into something positive, like a healing centre for people, for them and for their children before they go. Um, Uncle Richard Campbell is 
66 now. There are survivors of Kinchler who are probably a few years younger than him, but he is among the youngest. So they really feel like they haven't got a lot of time left in which to to um, make those changes happen. So in that context, us telling you know us doing this reporting is is important, but it's only important as long as there's some change, some useful change that that is what they are, have been seeking all their lives. What are your reflections on that, Sarah? I, I think um, it's similar to Lorena. I think it's kind of put this in, in the hands of survivors and it's made made governments and stolen generation survivors, organisations really put their wants and hopes and desires on, on the agenda again. And when we've seen that with the government committing to wanting to look at further investigations, you know, finally meeting with the uncles to talk about what they want. And I think that's some really positive, tangible outcomes that we've seen come out of this from both the federal and the state governments for the Kinchilla uncles. Just on a broader scale then, obviously just we've been um, having you reflect on what it's meant for the people you've been talking with as part of the investigation, but it strikes me that this is a story that has national significance in our discussions around reconciliation and highlighting experiences of First Nations people that shouldn't be forgotten. And it builds on a lot of other work that you've done through the Guardian Australia Lorena, I'm thinking of work with the Massacre Maps, a range of stories around um, the criminal justice system and child removal, etc. I was just wondering if I could get your reflections. I'll start with you, Sarah, on this, about what, how these broader conversations that we have nationally around truth-telling, how important is it that these stories, like the ones in this investigation, be a part of that national discussion? I think it's really, really critical. I think that for a long time these were were hidden, that, you know, survivors were told never to speak of them and that this was something that was only really whispered about in communities amongst families. You know, you would hear stories from your aunties and uncles and grandparents about what happened, but the broader country never really acknowledged what happened or they didn't want to acknowledge what happened. So I think the more that we can have these conversations and really reckon with what happened and what we've gone through, it's important. I think if we can kind of share that history and move forward together and realise that we both have have that uncomfortable history and, you know, can acknowledge that pain and trauma and resilience, I think that that is a, a really positive step. And what about you, Lorena? What's the role of these stories, and particularly this story, in that national uh, need for truth-telling? Yeah, it is truth-telling and it's truth-telling in its most raw and uncomfortable. I mean, it's not, it, it hasn't been fun doing this work, but it feels important and it feels necessary because you can't, we can't keep pretending it didn't happen. I mean, it's, it's 2023, it's time the country grew up and, you know, accepted what happened, the good and the bad, and accepted that, you know, we've got a lot more truth-telling to do and part of truth-telling is the listening and even though it's uncomfortable and even though it's going to make non-Indigenous people feel challenged, it has to be done. I mean, we as in, in First Nations people are tired of carrying this all around by ourselves. It's not, as Uncle Richard Campbell said to us at Kinchler, he said they created this history, they took us off our families, they did this to us. They've got to be held accountable for what they did. This is their history. They made the decisions. They, with a stroke of the pen, took me off my mum and dad. 
Um, and so it's their history. Uh, they have to come to terms with it. Um, and so in a way we're just using the opportunities and the um, the skills that we have to, to make a contribution to that. Lorena and Sarah, thank you both so much for this really important uh, reporting that you're doing for bringing these stories to light and for spending time with us on Speaking Out. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks. That's Indigenous Affairs Editor Lorena Allen and Indigenous Affairs Reporter Sarah Collard from The Guardian Australia. And you can keep following their reporting on this story there. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Australia has its very first ambassador for First Nations people. Justin Muhammad was appointed to the role in April after more than two decades working to improve the lives of First Nations people. Justin will join me soon, but first some music from Spinifex Gum. Oh
was the track Urella by Spinifex Gum. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Ambassador for First Nations People is a new government role attached to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Justin Mohammed is the very first ambassador, a position he started in April. Justin is a Gurengarang man from Bundaberg, Queensland. He started in junior roles in Aboriginal community health and worked his way up into management and leadership positions. Justin now leads the Office of First Nations Engagement within DFAT. The idea is to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to progress Indigenous trade, investment and rights globally. This is the first time Australia has had direct Indigenous representation in international engagement at this kind of level. Justin Mohammed, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Now, before we dive into your new role and the other work that you've done, I wondered if you could sort of set the scene for us a little bit and tell us where you grew up and what shaped your worldview, especially your interest in uh, Indigenous affairs and social justice. Yeah, well, I was I'm born and bred um, Queenslander. I'm Grang Grang um, from Bundaberg um, in Queensland and spent most of my growing up life going to school in the Bundaberg region um, around family and friends and um, even playing sport and um, was mainly with, you know, my cousins and, and close friends of the community. So in a sense, a sheltered life, uh, a sheltered life in a very community orientated and family orientated um, in a country town. As most teenagers do, you kind of just go through thinking the world just comes, whatever comes in front of you, it just happens and not, not, not a lot of thought um, going into it. But at the age of 19, I'm done a big, I made a big move and I moved down to um, Shepparton um, on Yorta Yorta country in Victoria. My mum and dad were working down there and my dad was working, picking fruit, etc. So I went down there for a relevantly short time, first time out that far away from Queensland, away from home. 
And um, I ended up staying there for like 20 years. So my my career in Aboriginal affairs started um, from a very much my traditional owner area, Grand Grang, and and the politics. I was fairly young, so I kind of followed the lead and listened to tape, you know kitchen table conversations, but not really involved as such because I was you know a teenager. But when I went to Victoria, I started learning the art and and the strategy around Aboriginal affairs through the Victorian Aboriginal communities, and um, as we know, have been in this space for a long, long time and have really established some major achievements across um, centuries now when dealing with this western westernized side of government so um, being there was there for like 20 years working for an organization called Rumble Aboriginal Cooperative community control very much in that side of you know the, the advocacy space from community into government and over the course of time was able to represent regionally and then state and then nationally and it, my, my career just kind of flowed from one step to another with a really social the social justice and human rights element was really embedded from my early years but then was even enhanced when I went down to Victoria just around self-determination around rights and um, international rights but also uh, how our First Nations people here in Australia weren't receiving the right health care or the adequate education and a whole range of these things in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. So that was, in a nutshell, that's that's who I am and um, this has led me all the way to the role that I have now. And just before we get to that role, I just wondered if you could reflect. I mean, you, you have um, consistently worked on Indigenous policy at the front line but you've worked within community-controlled organisations and you've worked within government positions, uh, statutory authorities, etc. So I just wonder from your perspective, how do you reflect on the challenges of being a First Nations person trying to affect change through uh, working within the system in that way? Yeah, look... It- in a short word, it's, it is difficult. It's not easy. Um, I'd never say that it has been easy. You know, a lot of people talk about these two worlds that we live in, and, it, and it's so true. You know, what what you when you go into a workplace, and then when you come home, it's it's two different sort of cultures and very different ways of doing business and doing life. Um, so it is difficult. It's difficult in the sense that I've found over my career, always trying to put to the front of a meeting or to a, a government that how important First Nations or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges and expertise are and how they are the answer or they are a key part of changing the status quo that we're stuck with um, or that we're, we're in. So that's kind of always that sort of getting us, picking yourself up to say, here we go again. The changes of government when there's, you know, you, you find, um, which is out of anyone's hands, but, you know, like you kind of start building a good relationship with the minister or with a senior person in office or the government of the day and then there's an election change or a ministerial change or um, changes to personnel and th- those things as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people we're, we're very connected around relationships so learning to adjust with that is um, has been quite a you know well, I'd say difficult but it's been something which you you kind of have to contend with along along the journey fortunately my my first 20 27 years um, of working 26 years of working was from the community control basis so kind of been from the community side advocating to government and then getting invited to maybe be on advisory panels or take some sort of um, on reference groups, etc. But always going back to community and 
and presenting what we think as community is the the real need for change or the direction that needs to take place. So that was, in some ways, it, it was, you know, it was always kind of that battle and you're picking yourself up to go in to really advocate strongly. And more recently, is in the last seven odd years, I've had a couple of roles, one as a commissioner for children and young people in Victoria and as a dep- deputy secretary of justice in Victoria. And now this role as the ambassador for First Nations people for the, the Commonwealth government. That presents new opportunities, but also new challenges, which you're inside the the engine, inside the tent, and working through that and, um, you know, seeing probably firsthand why certain things don't get um, progressed as quickly as we'd like as as community, but also seeing the opportunities that lay there, which, you know, you can say, well, gee, this could be a really good opportunity to have some influence to be able to change um, a mechanism which can work better for First Nations people. I did kind of want to give a bit of that background of your extensive work, which will give insight into why you were appointed into this role. So you've been in the role of Ambassador for First Nations People for several months now. Can you tell us what it entails? Because it's a new position and how it's all going. It is a, it's inaugural Ambassador for First Nations People for Australia, so the very first, but also the first in the world. There's no other government with an Ambassador for First Nations People. So it provides a lot of opportunity to do um, something very new, but on the other side of it, there's no real template or blueprint from other countries or other types of you know, positions like this that you can kind of pick up and go, okay, well, you know, maybe we should implement some of this stuff because this is what this, this ambassador in this country did um, that had a similar sort of role. So having that sort of greenfield site um, with some key sort of direct directions, but trying to establish what comes first and how we, what's the priority now and what I need to focus my time in and then what is the next plan and building really an office and um, this role as ambassador to embed it. So the, very importantly, the ambassadors that come after me and governments that, you know, come after this government, government will see this role in this office as a very integral part of our foreign policy and our foreign affairs. So the role was announced. I came in and I had to kind of go back Larissa, on what what I knew best, and what I knew best is that the best way to advocate or project or to be able to speak about issues is to talk to the people that have got that are living in those conditions or are, are, are in the innovation part of that, or in the grassroots or in the coalface of dealing with and working through solutions. So we made a very strong commitment to try to do as many domestic consultations and dialogues with a whole range of different uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, groups, organisations, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people working for government, traditional owner groups, a whole range of business owners. Um, and we've been on that journey for the last four months and Within the next three months, uh, three weeks, I should say, we'll, we would have have gone to every state and territory and spoken to many people. But obviously, we know it's you know, states and territories are very large. But to keep that dialogue happening, and then to follow that is then how do we represent that in an international space on very key issues of like climate, international trade, human rights, gender, health and justice in those international forums and be able to present and um, articulate how Australia is working in these spaces, but what we can offer to the rest of the world. And that's um, some of the early parts of the the role. Um, I've been overseas three times in the four months that I've been in this position. 
have done a number of domestic consultations, trying to build an office at the same time. So we're we're kind of doing all this. This is all brand new. So working out what are the priorities, what's urgent and what's important and making sure that balance is right between what we need to do that's urgent and what we need to be a part of that is important. And that's what we're working through at the moment as we go through and getting a lot of guidance from people who've been thinking about these individual or particular areas for many, many years and decades, you know, getting into speaking with them, but as well as connecting with a lot of the First Nations groups that we have across Australia of what they're doing in these key areas around what I mentioned, trade and climate and human rights, etc. I was really interested in that part of the work. It sounds like there's so much to do. You're setting up something new. You've got to create a vision for something that's never been done before. And then, of course, it's uh, not a small country to to traverse to do a consultation. In that work of going into the communities to ask them about this particular space, what are some of the things that you're hearing on the ground from people in terms of their expectations? Because this would be the first link really to grassroots communities and the international space. Well, it's the first for government. We know that there's been plenty of many people in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have hopped on planes and have gone overseas to advocate for the rights and to tell the world where we are in this country, but also contribute greatly into building um, international rights for Indigenous peoples globally. But for the Australian government, this is the first for the Australian government to have a position of, of this calibre and appointed into this role. So, And the other part, of, which is quite interesting in this role, is that um, th- this role was appointed by the Foreign Affairs Minister, Penny Wong, and that's ultimately who I'm answerable to. Again, I'm not too sure if there has been a position that's of this level for First Nations people that has been appointed by a Minister of Foreign Affairs in the past. So this is it's a new space, if we can definitely say that. So the community have really received this role, I, I find, really well. They, they, they see the opportunities, they're excited about it and potentially what can what we can do with this role. And the, the conversation pieces that I've had, obviously, when you speak to the mob, there's there's the things that aren't working, but once we work through those and walk through those, those and allow the, for the time for that to be spoken about, when we talk about what is working and some of the innovations that's on the ground and what's important to them, the conversation shifts the dial and becomes another step of potentially the, you know, what, what we're doing in, in a community that the ambassador or the rest of the, the nation and globally would be interested in. And they de- in globally, people want to know more about our First Nations people and the innovation and knowledges that we have. So the key areas which always that are coming up regularly, one is the appetite to tackle climate change and the things that are taking place to address climate change and work with those um, issues that confront us. But the op- options that or the opportunities we have to increase our trade um, routes around the uh, around the world um, to connect traditional trade routes, but also to look at new trade routes and and items and and expertise that we as First Nations people here have in Australia that we can take to other parts of the world. And collectively, um, the other part which I've really heard a lot about is that um, First Nations people in their communities want to be part of the challenges that we're facing as a nation, and um, not kind of be sidelined, but. Are coming and say we we've got something to offer, 
and we, we can actually contribute to you know Australia and and what we do as a nation collectively on these very you know sub, you know these challenges that we have um, that have faced us but not only our, our country but other countries around the world they're kind of the key things but can I probably finish off on this part it's very diverse and I don't think we should be you know we that shouldn't surprise anyone but you know what's important for the Torres Strait communities that live up in the Torres Strait may be different to and is different to what's you know important to the you know the Victorian community or the vice versa to what um, is happening in Darwin or in Perth to the Kimberley and this role which I'm trying to bring in that the diversity we have as First Nations people let's embrace that and let's try to build that across our foreign affairs and, and our policies that we have not try to congest it and make it into one but say well we have diversity and there might be multiple priorities that our First Nations people are telling us and it's really our job is how do we build that into our foreign affairs areas. Yes, it strikes me just listening to you that you are building this new space in foreign affairs that we haven't been able to work in at this level before. But just listening to you speak and some of your reflections, I mean, you note that there's a long history of trade between some of our nations and other international groups that's gone on before 1788. And uh, in reflecting on the work that you've done in First Nations communities around the country, you're very aware of a very different set of protocols in terms of how you operate culturally. And so I guess what struck me is that you are bringing a lot of knowledge about how First Nations people have operated in the space of trade and diplomacy. Are you hoping that some of that might actually change the way Australia thinks about foreign affairs? So as well as you entering this space that's sort of a new space for us as First Nations people, are you hoping you might be able to have some influence with um, the knowledges from our own community? Well, I'm more than hoping. Um, I wouldn't have taken this role on if I thought that wasn't going to be not only the opportunity, but the, um, I mean, very much a result that we can deliver on. Um, our country, as we know, and there's a lot of research, and as research gets better and the instruments that researchers use get better, the stories that we've been brought up with and that we've been told for, you know, for thousands of years that have come through family lines and communities um, are now being accredited and now being, you know, evidence-based and evidence-proven that those connections have been across these waterways um, for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. And I was just up in Gama recently and there was a really strong tribute and the involvement of the Macassan people and the story of how their link with the Yongle people dates back hundreds of years ago, the influences of each other's cultures in that and how they've you know, how they have got this strong connection and um, many countries that I've go to and I know there's storylines right across this this continent of these connections that we've had from countries from well before 1788 that have come to this this land have engaged with our indigenous people and have gone back to their countries and have spoken about it and now it's been recorded and has been acknowledged so I'm very much hoping but wanting to deliver that our First Nations international diplomacy and international trade, which has happened for hundreds and thousands of years, that they are now, they are to be embedded as part of how we go about our international diplomacy and how we engage with other countries. And I think other countries are wanting to to see that as well. And I said this only early this morning, but Australia with its international diplomacy and its international trade have, have done it in a very westernised concept and the structures around that. 
Um, this role in itself is to look at those structures, look at those processes and say how, if we want our First Nations expertise and our experiences and our value to our international diplomacy and bringing this back to where we have had strong diplomacy from this country and strong trade routes, that we um, we start looking and having our First Nations people right front and centre, not only in the both in the written policies, but also in our presentation and our um, and our meetings that we have. And speaking globally to many countries, not just the, our brothers and sisters that we've kind of gone to regularly, like New Zealand and Canada and uh, the US, etc., but many countries that have come and spoken to me and when I've gone overseas and they've come to Australia, they want to reconnect to this, um, to our First Nations people. They're in knowledge in our First Nations people as this, the, the knowledge holders of how to deal with key issues around climate, how to renew and, and how to build that strong, vibrant community and survive over the centuries which, which are in front of us. And that's been very much part of the dialogue and wanting to make sure that is a key part of what we do in Australia and going forward with these countries as we build these stronger relationships, maintain the relationships we have, build new relationships, but build it with this First Nations, you know, the the embedded in First Nations history and both history, but also the contemporary part of what we can offer on our global exchanges. It sounds like a very exciting time. I mean, I know there's a lot to do and there's a lot to cover and you're very ambitious for the position in the best possible way, but it's uh, impossible to speak with you without feeling the energy and enthusiasm you're bringing to the role. Where do you get that from? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I have a little bit of a, a nervous laugh. I'm, I'm always being fairly optimistic um, about what we can achieve. Uh, like many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will say, you, you do have your days when you go, well, people just don't get it or why can't people just embrace this, this rich culture that we have and expertise that we have? But, you know, it is pleasing to have a foreign affairs minister who has embraced is embracing this, is wanting this this position to to be something different from what we've had before as far as how ambassadors have worked before, but bringing First Nations to the forefront, that's exciting. But the, the fundamental um, part of this is that, um, like all of us, our, our families, our community, our elders, the scene, the optimism when I go around and speak with people give me this energy because they, they see there is a real opportunity to change and to have an input into an area which we haven't been strategically placed previously, but be able to gather all that work that has been done from many of those our leaders and advocates over many decades to bring that now into the Australian foreign policy area is something that I'm really excited about and having my community and my family to support me along that journey is um, is what keeps the energy levels up and when they are down and need to be recharged, that's who I go to. Well, it's an exciting new role. You're a fantastic appointment into it. It's going to be wonderful to see what you make of the opportunities and hopefully you'll come back and talk to us as you continue with the role. That's definitely the case. I want to go back to the communities that I've, I've spoken to the conferences that I've spoken to, which is really explaining what I'm going to do or what this role is set up to hopefully achieve. But in time to come, to come back and say, yeah, we have achieved that or now this is the process going forward um, is something I'm looking forward to and will keep me, as we all know, um, at the moment, there is a lot of, lot of energy and a lot of good energy and aspirations of what this role can do and what the Australian government can do in this space. So we can't just sit 
and just leave it at that. We've now got to deliver and that's the next part of this journey is making sure we have the right tools and the right mechanisms to deliver the results that are going to be the best interest for our First Nations people of Australia. Ambassador Mohammed, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. Thank you. Always a pleasure. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when I'll be in conversation with filmmaker and advocate Rachel Perkins. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.